emotional content. You're gonna have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hello, all you followers of Jeet Kune Do, and thank you so much for devouring the 79th dose of Scoring at the Movies. We look back at Flickr shows with sports in them, and we warn you now that we will reveal all the secrets of Bruce Lee's magnum opus. I'm the secret agent who prefers to fight without fighting. And I don't mean that philosophically. I really don't want to fight. Ryan Ellis. And here's my podcasting partner who would like to have no technique, but he's too busy looking good. Chris Gregorio. Wow. Never have you more accurately encapsulated me in your intro, Ryan. I'm so impressed with that. Although I found it a little unnecessary just before we started recording when you felt the need to bring out various items of wood, steel, and concrete and just break them in front of the camera to intimidate me. I thought we were on the same side, but it's okay. You've established your dominance. I get it. This is not the first time I've done that either. No. It's not the 10th, but it's not the first. I'm not the 4th. I'm mostly impressed by the fact that you continue to bring out so many boards to break before every recording, knowing how expensive lumber is. <laughs> it can't be a cheap practice for you just for intimidation purposes alone, but you keep at it, and I give you credit for that. Well, I use one of the two great lines in this movie in your intro by looking good. I'd forgotten that line. Jim Kelly says that. Of course, not the quarterback Jim Kelly, but the actor, the black actor in this film. And then the very beginning of this podcast, the very first thing you heard was, we need emotional content. Love that line. One of my favorite movie lines ever. It is great. And we were talking before we got going about how I've never seen this movie in its entirety. This is my first full viewing of it. And of course, I've seen various snippets of some of the more famous, mostly action sequences in this. But you do get a sense of where all of the tropes of Bruce Lee came from. And that's one of the sequences where you can really see some of the memes popping up. And then, of course, the other ones all come from his death blow kind of stunts when he really gets that half constipated, half angry, half worried look on his face. The animal noises, of course. And then when he actually stomps on somebody's face, especially that O'Hara guy, and then twists his foot. Eddie Murphy does that in Bowfinger at the end of that movie when they're making another movie, which is obviously an homage to Bruce Lee. Okay, let's get into the basics of what we always do. What are you drinking? I have CC and say to everybody, Diet Pepsi. Oh, easy there, Ryan. Keep it in the straight and narrow. We never would have guessed. I decided to go with Ephus tonight, which is an oatmeal brown ale. There's a brewery near both of us that is strictly baseball themed. They name all their beers after baseball terms. So that's why this is called Ephus. I didn't know what that meant until I was watching a baseball game last week and they actually talked about it when they're talking about Zach Greinke because he actually throws this pitch. And Ephus is an incredibly slow curveball that you almost never see in the bigs, but periodically apparently Greinke will throw one every start or two just to really throw batters off their stride. All right. You should have saved it for a baseball movie, which we'll do sometime soon, I think. Not for a few more weeks. Let me set this up before you tell me what you thought of this movie your first time seeing it, and probably my fourth. Hans Island, or Blood and Steel, or The Deadly Three. 
All three of those were working titles for this movie. Enter the Dragon's a good title, obviously a very famous title now. Some of those are pretty generic, so maybe that's the best title, the one they went with. Was released here at home by Warner Brothers in mid-August, 1973. So, about a year before I was born, and many years before you were born. This is the first time we've ever covered a movie that that's true about. What a hit. It's one of the most successful movies ever when you compare the budget to the profit. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers are outstanding. 95% of critics like this film. 7.8 out of 10 is the average. I'm going on Wikipedia now, and that's where they say that. I told you before that Rotten Tomatoes didn't show the averages anymore, but Wikipedia does. That's where I got that. And that's on the strength of 55 reviews, so a pretty good sample. And 91% of audiences. It also, I think this is the first time I've ever said this, or if it's not, it's one of the few times I've ever said this for one of our episodes, made the National Film Registry. So Congress is protecting this movie for all time. That was in 2004, the same year as Ben-Hur, and Schindler's List, unquestioned classics, very famous films. And Enter the Dragon was nominated for the Top 100 Thrills. That makes sense. Pretty thrilling film. And the Top 50 Heroes, obviously, Bruce Lee playing Lee. It's his character's name, but not in the sports category, despite the fact we're jamming it into the sports category here this week because of the pseudo-MMA in this film. I like this film an awful lot. I've seen it many times, like I said. What do you think? It was a heck of a viewing experience for me because I know a lot about Bruce Lee. I've always found him to be a fascinating person, both because of his TV and film work, but also because of his legendary physical fitness and stuff like that. And I'd seen him in some of his early roles like Green Hornet, but he doesn't really have the same focus on him, right? So it wasn't until seeing this movie that I really appreciated the raw charisma that the guy has on screen. And you can really understand why this was a star-making vehicle for him, more so than I think any of his other roles ever proved to be. As we talk about this movie, there's going to be a lot I rip on just because it's 70s campy at its core. I get now, A, why it was so hugely influential on future movies, both in the kung fu genre of the 70s and other action movies generally. I get why Bruce Lee became such a star, and I get why this movie was a hit. It's oddly dark in tone in some places, but it's mostly just fun and campy and full of pretty cool action sequences for the 70s. I was actually more impressed than I was expecting to be coming away from it. That's how I felt when I first saw it. I rented it probably 20 years ago, maybe more. Of course, I knew who Bruce Lee was, but I don't know if I'd ever seen him in a movie before, even in a small role. And you're right, this movie made him a star, but in a way, you got to say it would have made him a star because he died a month before it came out of a cerebral edema. This guy, who's the peak of physical health, who espoused the things he says in this movie, Bruce Lee is mostly just playing Bruce Lee in this movie. Yeah. But for some reason, one of those things where somebody's in perfect health dies, and yet somebody else who's in terrible health can live to be 80 years old. But he would have been a superstar. Instead, he's got the legend of James Dean, in a way. James Dean dies after three movies, a very good actor, maybe a little bit too much. That's also 50s-style method acting. But if Jimmy Dean hadn't died when he was a kid and only had made three movies, he would have gone on to maybe be thought of more like Brando, where, yeah, he could be great, but oh my God, look at the crap, because everybody makes crap. But if you die this early, you don't have time to make crap. So I'm saying Bruce Lee is the athletic version of James Dean. He was quite good in this, but the biggest thing he would have faced in trying to truly break into Hollywood would have been the language barrier. Well, then again, Jackie Chan, who's in this movie, by the way, one of his mm -hmm. first films, even now doesn't speak English all that well. So maybe that's not really fully true. But yes, the charisma, he co-wrote this movie uncredited. He co-produced this movie uncredited. 
Of course, he's the star of the film. This is truly his project. I'm surprised it doesn't say uncredited director, even though that was Robert Klaus who got credit for this. But he did also choreograph the fight scenes, that huge fight at the end especially. He apparently is responsible for everybody there, so I didn't look closely, but if you rewound the movie multiple times and looked on the left-hand side of the screen, then the top, then the right-hand side, then the bottom left, then the bottom right, if Bruce Lee did his job as well as I'm guessing he did, you probably wouldn't see too many people faking it. They probably looked pretty real, and he was the one that had set all that up. Because it's 70s camp, there's definitely sequences within the fights that are super fake-looking, the fight in Mr. Han's office where some of the guys get kicked through doors and Han breaks the birdcage. And you're like, oh yeah, that's clearly some drinking straws just pasted together to look like a birdcage. And that's how we broke through it. It is one of those tragic quirks of history that a guy that is as legendarily fit as Bruce Lee, his strength, his capability, that just seem almost superhuman. And for him to die so young at the peak of that fitness does seem ironic, although I understand, in retrospect, a lot of people have forensically analyzed his autopsy results and said, well, it's probably a combination of heat stroke causing the expansion of his brain that led to the cerebral edema. And apparently he had a back injury for years and was taking constantly some kind of combination painkiller and anti-inflammatory or something that might have reacted with something else he took to relax or sleep or something like that. And that in conjunction with the heat. He had a wrestler's death then. Not far off. Yeah. Often they're 35 years old or maybe a little older. Why did they die? Because of what you just said, the stuff they put in their body. And it's not necessarily really hard stuff like what's in this movie. This is an opium movie as well. It's not that they're doing that necessarily, but they're taking painkillers. And that's why these wrestlers die so much because they try to cope. Football players probably have to go through that too. A lot of people do. And if Bruce Lee was, that explains it a little bit more why he would die at 32. It is really sad, but if nothing else, at least he's a guy that got some of what he had to offer on film. If you went to him and said, Bruce, if you had a magnum opus to leave behind to the world, what would you want it to be? I don't think from what I understand of the making of this movie, it would have been Enter the Dragon as much of a hit as it became from Bruce Lee's perspective. I think he had some issues with it, but there's so much cool stuff in this. One of the coolest things for this movie was the way that they build up Bruce Lee's character in it. It's almost like you set a very low expectation and you gradually raise the bar of difficulty as you go until, of course, you get to that enormous 400-man fight sequence at the end of the movie. The very first introduction that we get to Bruce at the monastery in this movie, he's fighting a monk, I suppose. Yeah, the first shot is him fighting. They don't waste time. They don't waste time, but they picked the least imposing looking guy you could possibly pick as an opponent for Bruce Lee to start with. It's not like they picked, I'm going to forget the character's name of this, but he went on to a lot of bit parts, including I think in Lionheart, the giant buff guy at Hans Island, Wallow, Wado, Bolo, Bolo. that's it. Yeah. They could have faced off against him in the monastery and everyone would be like, whoa, look at what a badass Bruce Lee is. He's going up against this guy who's literally twice his size and he's going to beat him. But they don't. They start out with this guy that kind of looks like the Asian, 70s Asian equivalent of like a slightly overweight Justin Bieber. Because he's got floopy <laughs> hair in his eyes. He's not moving terribly quickly. He kind of looks off balance. And he just gets destroyed. Baby, 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 baby. Yeah, exactly. I expected him to flip his hair back and start breaking into song at any point. Don't kill me, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee just sort of gently destroys him in the fight. Never really punishes him at all. It just takes him down. And this might be my first Bruce fact that I love more than anything else. The guy was apparently so fast and so skilled at fighting in real life 
that three times that have been verified by eyewitnesses, he was challenged to a fight, including on the set of this movie, I think. By some of the stuntmen. Yeah. Some of the stuntmen and extras fought for real, probably in some of those big scenes, but just beyond that. And several of them challenged Bruce Lee. I didn't read if anybody beat him. I'm guessing not. No. Unlike what happens in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Brad Pitt's character would have beaten him if they'd kept going in that fight, probably. But in reality, I don't know if Bruce Lee ever lost a fight. The three verified instances that I read about just said not only did he not lose... I'm sure he lost a fight at some point, don't get me wrong. But in these circumstances, not only did he not lose the fights to these people that challenged him, he was so fast and so agile, they didn't land a punch on him. He dodged around them and then sort of took them down without getting hit, without hitting them, just incapacitated them. If I may, float like a butterfly, sting like a lee. I got the appropriate facial response from you right there. No one can see what he's doing. He's doing the right thing. You're supposed to be the dad joke teller, not me. Oh, God. I thought you were going to go with, if I may, he fought without fighting. But no, you went the dad joke route, and I applied you for it, I guess. It's funny he says the fought without fighting thing. Yeah. Early on in the movie, he's having a philosophical discussion with his master. He's going to go undercover in Han's tournament. That he's been recruited by Braithwaite, all that stuff. But it's funny he says he wants to have no technique and fight without fighting and all that. But when the chips are down, not only does he fight, as he should, much like Mr. Miyagi, he's got to defend himself. But unlike Mr. Miyagi, he takes it to him. Like we said, he kills Bolo viciously. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily kill everybody. I don't think he does kill every one of Han's men. Well, you see the first night when he attacked them all and they get punished for getting so easily dispatched. At that point, Han doesn't know who did it. But then when it's the big brawl, he is fighting dozens of guys. He doesn't kill all of them. But we know he kills one person for sure. And when he needs to, and he does need to in that situation... He's ruthless. Yeah. So I guess the fight without fighting, having no technique, kind of like Yoda in Star Wars. You must use your brain. He never said that. But he basically tells Luke, don't be aggressive. But we see an attack of the clones and you have to be aggressive against Christopher Lee's character. Also to defend your young charges, Anakin and Obi-Wan, then Yoda will do his best to kick as much ass as possible and kill if he has to. Because you mentioned that sequence where, of course, Bruce Lee has infiltrated the secret sanctum on the island that Han has got hidden under some bushes, I guess. In the morning, he punishes the guards for that. And he says, it doesn't matter who did it. What matters is the guards failed me. Effectively, they're going to be killed by Bolo in the ring of students. Bolo savagely kills the first three guys one-on-one. -on -one. And then the fourth guy's just like, Screw this. I don't need this job this badly, man. I'm out of here. And just tries to, like, book it under the ring of students. And it gets thrown back in. Not only does Bolo kill him, he kills him by folding him in half like a book. He's in his arms like a baby. And he squeezes the legs up to his chest until, I guess, his back breaks or something. Jason Voorhees does that in one of the Friday the 13th movies. He does that some guys in a bed. And he grabs the two mattress parts, obviously not the box spring, and just folds the guy in half. That's what I was thinking when so I watched Friday it. maybe Friday the 13th movie was homaging this. Almost certainly. Bruce Lee is our proxy in this. Like he's our hero. Because I know that you've got Roper, who's kind of a hero as well, I guess. I read John Saxon thinks, or thought at the time, that he was the star of the movie. That he thought this was his film. And he's definitely the second lead. Yeah. But he's not the star of the movie. He should have realized that. For a movie where Bruce Lee is the star, there are long stretches of the movie where we don't see any of him. It really just focuses on Roper's adventures on the island. So it does kind of balance between the two. But I guess Bruce Lee is really the moral heart of the movie throughout all of it, right? Because he's the defender of the weak. We see that on the boat to the island. Of course, he's doing this to defend the honor of his family and his sister. But when Han says, I'm going to kill these four guys just because they let somebody sneak into the base, 
You would think that Bruce Lee would be like, it was me. But then he also does have a mission given to him by government officials, and maybe he realizes that's more important than these four people that he already walloped. But you're right. Morally speaking, he does the wrong thing by not speaking up. The guy with the terrible fake mustache that goes to recruit Bruce Lee at the monastery, who is he? Is he part of the CIA? Well, he's English, so I think he's part of, what do they call that? MI6? No, maybe MI6. That could be it. And it's also the 70s, so it's the Bond movie heyday as well. I think that's what it's supposed to be. He's clearly English, so. I had no idea who this person was meant to be and who was recruiting Bruce Lee and why they're recruiting Bruce Lee and how they knew that Bruce Lee was good at Kung Fu or at least at martial arts, except for this one guy he watched him beat up in the monastery. Word got around somehow. Well, this is funny. This movie does have that plot early on, and it takes 35 minutes to get the deadly three to the island and other people too, but our main three characters, and 40 minutes until we get Han's speech. I love that too. They're all having dinner and the women are presenting themselves. You know where that's going to go with Williams and Roper the end of the night they're going to have their fun lee does not though we don't see it at least i think that's another moral part of this movie he doesn't just casually sleep with women but roper with that one woman anyway the organizer of han's troops and women and such the blonde woman blonde i think so and then of course williams is with so many women <laughs> which is fun that's where he's looking good but lee's got more class than that i guess as far as the moral thing goes with lee when that bully is on the boat Let's go off and we'll fight on that island over there. Okay, I'll get in the boat. You join me. You go first. And it just lets him out and drags him behind. I guess he doesn't get drowned. Yeah. Although that boat looks like it's going to sink. If he was really doing that for real, I think maybe that guy would have had to swim or drown. But it's just smart to fight without fighting. There's an example of fighting without fighting. That's what Mr. Miyagi would have done too. And it's one of the few laughs in this movie. One of the few laughs that involve Bruce Lee. He's not the funniest character. Williams has his moments at least. This was clearly an inspiration for the Mortal Kombat mythos. They all gather on a mystical island for the Mortal Kombat tournament, and they're all brought there by old-timey boat. That's exactly what's happening here. Like you said, the Dangerous Three are on this boat with this asshole of an Englishman, I guess. And my note to myself there was, why is this British guy such a dick? Because this poor boat hand or something is just bringing out a crate of oranges, and the British dude's just like, karate kick, and knocks the crate of the guy's hands, and then bullies him from there. You're on a boat, you're stuck here in an enclosed space with all these other people that are just going to be hating your guts. And then, of course, the next thing is he challenges Bruce Lee to the fight. And the fact that Bruce points to a boat that's tethered to the side of this big punt or whatever it is and says, we'll take that boat to that island in the distance and we'll fight there because we need more space. I assume that there would be oars in the boat, maybe a motor in that little boat. But there was nothing in the dinghy. What is the British guy thinking is going to happen here? They're both going to get in the boat and sort of sit there with their, thinking. their arms crossed and just float away to the island? How are they going to get back? <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Yeah. And then I'm going to fight you. When we get there, I'm going to be so mad. Meantime, what do you do for fun? <laughs> Let's get to know each other. Are you into books? What kind of television do you watch? Oh, you're on television. I forgot. This is getting meta. Yeah, we've got a lot of time to kill. We better get to know each other. Well, you know what? Speaking of the island... Speaking of the fact that this is a drug island, the opium, everything, I have to do the nutshell, I think. Segways decently well here. And speaking of Bruce Lee, so in a nutshell, small but powerful man ruins a perfectly good island vacation. That party was dope. <laughs> Please give me the face again. That deserves another dad joke look. <laughs> I am using what the kids would say, though. It was dope. Oh, there's dope in the island. That was rough. And it was a good vacation. Ugh. Oh. The pandemic is ruining me, Chris. 
like you said, it's a good 35 minutes that we spend getting to know Roper, getting to know Williams, and getting to know Bruce Lee's motivations, at least, for this, right? We get their backstory, Williams and Roper especially. Yeah, we don't really know that much about Lee's backstory. Well, his sister, we see her backstory, actually. But Roper is that he's a gambling addict, and Williams beats up cops, steals their cop car, and those two guys, Roper and Williams, went to Vietnam together. And then, of course, we see Lee's sister, who is a great fighter, too. Roper's backstory is pretty straightforward. Williams' backstory is also fairly straightforward, except you get a real overtone of, oh yeah, there was a lot of racism in the 70s as well as in the 2020s. There you go, cops beating up visible minorities on the street just because. Although, did you notice in the dojo that Williams visits before he gets accosted by the police, there's a mural or emblem on the wall, and it looks almost exactly like the Cobra, Cobra Kai? Kai symbol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cobra Kai? Is this the inspiration for Karate Kid? 11 years before Karate Kid, too. It wasn't like it was remotely close, so they could have been stealing from it in Karate Kid. Okay, so I wasn't totally imagining it. The other thing about the racism you're talking about is that Jim Kelly went on to do Black Belt Jones and Black Samurai, another black exploitation flicks. So he clearly has karate talents and probably used them well in Black Samurai, clearly. I guess both of those movies are. I didn't look that closely, but they must both be MMA kinds of films. But that's what he went on to do. So he faced the black exploitation thing. He probably had to beat up or get beaten up by cops in a lot of his films. I'm glad that he had a career beyond this because I kind of dug his character. You mentioned the sidekick prostituting a bunch of women to Williams and Roper, which I was like, oh, that's a little grim. I did kind of like Williams off the cuff, pure 1970s machismo line of, uh, let's see, how about you, you and you and sorry, girls, I can only handle three. I've had a long day. I'm kind of tired. And that's so <laughs> 70s. Who's the man? Shaft! Yeah, it was very Williams. Shaft vibes. What was I going to ask you before? Oh, yeah, the sister's backstory. Okay, so let's dig into this a little bit, because I found this both mystifying and slightly dark, but also wildly amusing. I don't know if it's grandfather. I don't know if it's uncle. I don't know if it's some sort of like adoptive mentor guy that's explaining to Bruce I think Lee. mentor. Yeah, okay. I feel like mentor is what he is, an old friend. And he's the one who cuts O'Hara's face. We see why O'Hara's got that giant Scarface type scar on his face. It's from that guy. They introduce O'Hara at the beginning of the movie, and then the British guy makes a point of saying, somewhere along the line, he picked up his big scar, and we don't know how. And then immediately we get the sister's backstory, where we find out how he got that big scar. But the scar never comes into play. It's not like O'Hara comes up to Bruce Lee, is like, your mentor gave me this scar, and I'm going to get my revenge. No, it's just never commented on again. You just see the big scar from there on out. You're right, that should have been addressed. That's the one way that would actually make sense to dwell on that at all. Is if he's mad about it and wants revenge. <laughs> the fact that they introduced it as a mystery and then immediately solved that mystery and then never touched on it again. <laughs> All right, that's a thing, I guess. It reminded me of the Star Wars thing. Oh, no, Chewie's dead. Oh, no, Chewie's alive again. There was no tension at all to that. It immediately solved itself. Okay. But this mentor guy, I have to tell you about your sister now. And then he explains, we were getting ready to go to the island ourselves. So I guess she was going to compete in the tournament, which is cool. They don't really say where this is, but I guess there's roving bands of kung fu assaultists or something that just roam the streets attacking young women in this world because they accost these two in the street and one dude jumps in front of her onto the bridge and then assaults her by wrapping both arms around her and smiling broadly. This is some sort of like 70s code for he's trying to sexually assault her, I suppose. Personal space! Personal space! It's the least offensive assault I've ever seen in my life, but I think I get what they're going for here. But then it goes up a notch because there's a rumble in the Bronxy style fight where they're fighting up the alleyways and buildings. The mentor gets his ass whooped and he's out of the picture and they're chasing the sister. And eventually she gets cornered by O'Hara and immediately... 
picks up this jagged shard of glass and stabs herself in the belly with it. And I'm like, how did this escalate so far so fast from a guy giving you an unwanted hug to you committing suicide? What is the reputation of this place that rather than be captured by O'Hara, she was willing to kill herself because she was going to the tournament, right? That's the whole premise of this story. And O'Hara works as Han's right-hand man. So how does she know that he's not there to escort her to the island? And instead she's like, oh my God, this guy's going to rape me or something. I must kill myself first. It was like Anchorman. Wow, that escalated quickly. Went from like a fairly <laughs> nondescript, and we walked to the docks to 30 seconds later, she's dead by her own hand. That got dark. You saw this movie more recently than I did. I had to see it about a, almost a week ago at least. So I may have missed something, but I'm going to guess they literally said she was an agent as well, like Lee becomes. Is that true? That was never explained. Braithwaite doesn't tell him that? Okay. Not that I Let's heard. just say that's what it was, because I thought you were going to say yes, and then I have my point. So my point's going to be, if I'm right, that Han found out, okay. and that's why he never killed. That would actually make more sense then. If that's the case, and she's like, well, I can't get captured because they know I'm an agent and they'll torture me or something, fine. Turn her a prostitute. Or maybe, yeah, maybe they'll rip her feet and her toenails and her eyelids off or something, then kill her. But whatever her fate is, it's terrible. Or, you know what would have been a fun punch-up to this movie, actually? Now you say that, because I don't remember them actually making that connection, although I might have missed it. But later in the movie, when Bruce Lee finds the drug facilities and all that, and we find out that there's women kept against their will in cages, and they're just being injected with the drugs, I guess, for testing the potency of the drug or whatever... It would have been a neat connection to make if these were actually agents as well that we sent to infiltrate the island and they got found out and this is what would have happened to your sister and that's why she committed suicide. But he never frees those women. He just runs by them. In fact, one of them is like, help, let me out. This is horrible. <laughs> and he's just like, see ya. And then we get a shot of the nurse going in there to inject that person with more drugs after. Good God, Bruce, how many people are you going to leave to their fate in this movie? Whoa. He's not very moral in that way, is he? Uh, well, Tanya... Isn't she the one that actually does free them? Because during the big brawl at the end, when everybody's fighting, Williams is already dead. He's the only one in this movie. And I guess Bolo is too. And O'Hara? Anyway, O'Hara everybody who's too. left is now in the big brawl. And she does free them. Much like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. Maybe that's homaging this too, because all the kids run out. You see them running home in Temple of Doom. And all these girls run out and get involved in the fight. Well, then again, she also frees the guys who've been imprisoned and that's why right. there's such a huge brawl on the surface so roper's leading the big brawl above ground and lee's leading the big brawl below ground kicking so much ass so this we have jammed into being an mma film and i guess it is it's not really disingenuous to make this an mma scoring it's martial movie. arts it is yeah and this is mixed martial arts the jeet kune do thing that lee invented and you could just call it kung fu that's what he technically is i guess is kung fu more than anything bruce lee they all are i guess kung fu people now, we don't know much about MMA or Jeet Kune Do, Kung Fu, or any of that stuff. Considering that, and I never watch MMA anyway, this seems pretty awesome. When you get legitimately good martial artists like Saxon and Jim Kelly, and of course Bruce Lee, whose real name, by the way, is Lee Jun Fan, F-A-N, Fan, I guess you pronounce that, or Fan, then you know you're in excellent hands. And then the guys they fight in this movie, too. Bob Walu plays O'Hara, Scarface guy. And then Bolo Young, who's credited as Yang Z, who's Bolo in this. And then for that matter, Shi Qian is an actual longtime friend and mentor of Bruce Lee. Yeah. So when they had their big fight together, these are friends working together who I think maybe did this in some other film together. Another good fact about that guy, by the way, so Han, the bad guy, did 280 movies in 55 years. But the fun fact is one of his credits is literally this, Interpol Hockey Teach Coach. I guess that's a sentence. Maybe. <laughs> Okay. Interpol hockey teach coach. Love it. 
This was like peak James Bond era during the handoff from Connery post Diamonds Are Forever to Roger Moore. And I was getting huge Connery era James Bond vibes off of this movie with the underground lair, the drug conspiracy ring, of course, like you said, this the MI6 slash CIA or whatever involvement, and right down to Han, who's got a real Dr. No vibe going with his metal hand You're that's right. always in the glove. Two versions of a metal hand. One's an iron hand and the other one's a claw hand. Not just a claw hand, real snazzy claw hand because they put <laughs> like faux fur over the top of it. So it's like a claw even the guy that plays Roper puts off some serious Connery vibes to me. He's got a resemblance yeah. to Connery. He's got a similar toupee to Connery that he wore <laughs> in the Bond movies. There was a lot going on in this that really evoked a lot of Bond vibes. If you watch Bond in the 70s after Enter the Dragon, there's sequences, particularly in the Roger Moore movies, that I think borrow from a lot of what Enter the Dragon did. As much as Enter the Dragon, I think, borrowed from a lot of tropes from earlier Bond movies. I think the elevator pitch for this movie was James Bond, Kung Fu. Let's figure out how to make that work. And then you end up with this movie. Early on, when the MI6 dude is speaking to Bruce Lee and is explaining the island and is explaining the mission, and Bruce goes, well, why the hell don't you just get a bunch of Glocks and shoot everybody on the island? And the guy's like, no, no. That was my thought, right? As soon as he's explaining, I'm like, well, why don't they just get a bunch of guys with Uzis and just go in there and take over the island? And credit to the screenwriters, they saw this question coming, right? And they're like, no, no, can't have guns. They said something about here's our borders. And okay, I still don't see how that stops anything. First of all, the international incident aspect of this would be one element, maybe. But the bigger deal, and he maybe didn't even say this, might be that if you go in with guns, they kill the hostages. And they are hostages, these women especially, but those guys also who've been in prison. So maybe that's one reason why. It'd be a Waco-type incident. You go in there, and innocent people are going to die. And the bigger reason, of course, beyond any of that stuff is, if they don't do it, there's no movie. We can't have a movie if we kill them off so fast. It's funny about John Saxon, by the way, being the other lead of this movie, thinking he was the main lead. He worked for over 60 years. I think he's still working now. I'll check on that in a second. But he's best known, to the average person probably, for the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. He was in the first, and I think the third, and other horror films, too. His resume is more horror films than kung fu-type movies, even though he clearly could do that very well too. Maybe he did plenty of them and I just didn't see them on his resume, but I'm seeing more horror stuff in my research for John Saxon. Oh, he did die last July. So he worked for 60 years. That's a long career. And he is Nancy's dad in The First Night on Elm Street, which is obviously the most famous movie he ever did. Probably even more than this, despite this incredible success. Yeah. And then Bob Wall, who is O'Hara, the big dude who has the Scarface, was in Game of Death and other movies with Bruce Lee and then did stuff with Chuck Norris. And Bolo Young was in Bloodsport and other Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. So a lot of these guys did other MMA-type movies, whatever you want to call it, MMA or Kung Fu or what have you, karate, with some of the biggest names in that genre in the span of 10 or 20 years. Norris, JCBD, and Bruce Lee before them. So I said a minute ago when I thought of the sports action, because I don't really know much about this kind of thing, but it looks pretty impressive to me. This isn't my type of film, but I really enjoyed it when I first saw it and still enjoy it now. But what do you think of the quote-unquote sports action? And maybe I shouldn't say quote-unquote, it is sports action. It's fun in a 70s way, and when Bruce Lee's involved, it's impressive. When he's not involved, I think it's when you get some of the scenes happening that's clearly more choreographed and more stop-start as the camera's rolling kind of stuff to set the scene. People clearly throwing themselves through screens and stuff like that to get a sense of getting punched backwards. But where Bruce is actually fighting, it's impressive stuff because from what I understand, it was mostly actual fighting where he would just tell people, come at me as fast as you can and I'll just defend myself. 
And in particular, the fight against O'Hara, where he smashes the two bottles together at the end of it and comes at Bruce Lee with the bottle ends. They couldn't source was a sugar glass or whatever they used to fake bottles in movies oftentimes. Okay. They didn't have any. So Bruce just said, use real bottles and I'll defend myself. And they shot it like 12 times. And the actor that played O'Hara was really coming at Bruce Lee as fast as he could. And Bruce was just defending himself. Lee got cut and had to get 12 stitches on his hand during one take. But unsurprisingly, Bruce Lee's just really good. And one of my favorite anecdotes about him is during the filming of Green Hornet playing Cato, oftentimes they would be shooting action sequences and the camera would pick up the sequence and it would look like Bruce Lee was just standing still and people were falling over in front of him because he's famously fast and he doesn't necessarily have a big, long sequence of movements. It's just like a quick punch and the person's down. One of the anecdotes from this movie is that one of the extras that fought him, the crew were watching and they thought that in the fight Bruce Lee didn't touch the guy until the guy opened his mouth and it was full of blood because he punched him so fast nobody could see it but when he was filming <laughs> Green Hornet the director had to ask Bruce Lee to slow down his fighting for the camera I remember reading that too yeah and he years ago I read that too yeah, he was so fast he had to slow down to be a blur on screen is kind of what it amounts <laughs> to his physical fitness was all geared toward explosive movement especially when you're only five seven according to the IMDB and I bet that's a bit of a lie that he wasn't even that tall the other guy, by the way, I know I read this for sure. I think it was in Lethal Weapon 4. Jet Li, he had to slow down because Richard Donner said, we can't see your movements on film. Yeah. So Bruce Lee and Jet Li. I've never been the biggest Jet Li fan as an actor, although he's been good in some things. But he might be the heir apparent to Bruce Lee, not nearly as famous. Now, can I ask you before we get off of the fight scene between O'Hara and Bruce Lee? Bruce Lee is not in this movie to be comedic, but there are a few moments that are legitimately funny. And this is what gave rise to my comment to you right off the top of this episode. The MI6 agent is introducing O'Hara as a character to Bruce Lee. He shows him footage of O'Hara having boards broken of his body and him breaking flaming bricks and stuff like that. And then later when O'Hara is about to fight Bruce Lee, Bruce is standing in the middle of the human ring of observers and O'Hara gets pulled out of the crowd, pulls up from his side a board that he then proceeds to break, I guess, to try to intimidate Bruce. Does this guy just travel with boards all the time, just in case he has to fight somebody? Just in case. And if that's true, does he have in his room in the castle a pile of boards ready to go so that when he leaves the room, he just grabs one and has it ready? He's like, oh shit, this guy's going to fight me. Uh, bam, break it on command just in case. Pays for extra luggage. Yeah. And also, you know the thing where they say wallet, phone, keys, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, same thing. Wallet, phone, keys, board. Board. Makes sense. And now in these days, mask. Not back in 73, but in 2021, mask. Well, in that fight against O'Hara, that's when he really uses the animal noises he made so famous as he wallops him and then kills him and does that with his foot move. I guess he's breaking his neck or face or something. It must be his neck. I think so. But that's the thing about this movie. There's so many famous moments. Some of the dialogue we've already quoted, of course, that moment for sure when he does that. The brawl in general, yes, but more like the small moments as well. The cobra, that was a real cobra. It actually bit Bruce Lee mm -hmm. once. Generally, he was able to grab it like he does and stick it in the bag. I guess that was all real, but it was devenomized when it did bite him. You mentioned comedy. Well, this was funny when he uses it to scare off security guards and the bored look on his face while he waits for them to leap out of the room. That was good. <laughs> that was a pretty good little moment. Okay, they're going to go. And there they go. And then, of course, one of the other very famous things about Bruce Lee from this movie, maybe he did it in other films as well, but from this movie especially, when he tastes his own blood, and that's when I got mad. And that's when he really goes nuts on Han, 
in the Hall of Mirrors, the thousands of mirrors, and he breaks them all to find Han to narrow it down very smartly. And then he kicks Han into Han's own spear that he'd thrown through one of those mirrors earlier. And that's how Han dies, spinning round and round. Great touch. We haven't really talked much about Robert Klaus as the director, but he obviously knew what he was doing with some of these shots because he got some excellent shots. When they use slow-mo, it's done well. Bruce Lee wasn't a filmmaker in that sense. He didn't direct it. I didn't read anybody saying he directed and Robert Klaus just got credit. So the guy did direct it. Robert Klaus didn't get an incredible career out of this like he might have thought, but he did do The Ultimate Warrior a couple years later, not The Wrestler, with Ewell Brenner. And then Game of Death, he directed for Bruce Lee, which wasn't finished. Lee was in that. And that's where he wears the yellow jumpsuit that Uma Thurman wears in the Kill Bill films as an homage to Bruce Lee. I saw that. But Lee didn't finish it. And that writer, if I didn't say Michael Allen, A-L-L-I-N, Allen or Allen, probably Allen, only has six or had, I guess, movie credits did effectively co-write with Lee. But they apparently battled a lot on this. You really should defer to the star. But then I wonder if Warner Brothers made it clear he was the star. We talked about racism in the 70s. I'm sure Lee faced it, too, because who's this little Chinese guy? Everyone knows who he was, probably, from the Green Hornet. And he was also on Batman as Kato in the Green Hornet stuff. The two of them were on that show a few times. So it wasn't like they didn't literally know who he was. But still, they probably thought, racistly, who does this guy think he is? But he was clearly the unquestioned star and master of this project. Because you don't read that much on the line, as much trivia as there is about this movie on the IMDb and Wikipedia, about the director. Almost at all which is weird for a movie that succeeded this much. And is this relatively complex, too, in the fight scenes and everything else? Yeah, that's true. And you're absolutely right about the Cobra stuff. In that one sequence with the control room, he shoves the Cobra into the room and it sort of sits bored. I loved his expression in that moment. This is something that I didn't give Bruce Lee a lot of credit for, but just because of lack of familiarity with his work generally. He's got an expressive face. The man can deliver lines and deliver expression in a scene and make you believe it, even if it's like a really over-the-top action sequence. There's something about his delivery that made me believe he was believing what he was saying. So there's sincerity to his performance somehow. But in that moment where he throws the Cobra into the control room, there's two guys in there. I get you don't want to try to jump over the Cobra to get back out the door and you're scared to get bitten or whatever. So one of them picks up the chair and throws it through a window, but then doesn't climb through the window. He headlong, bodily launches himself through the window. (laughs) And then the second dude's like, no, no, I'm not doing that. And he casually climbs out himself. (laughs) This first guy's so scared, he just launched through it was just like a bullet that would be me <laughs> i might have gone head first through that window not chair first through that window if it was me you mentioned the complexity of this movie and i think one of the things that i was most impressed by aside from lee was some of the elements of roper's character and you talk about sequences that get borrowed by james bond later on that weapon cache the room that han has with the weapons from history and stuff you said he got killed by being impaled on one of those spears That, I think, gets later borrowed by, I think it was one of the Timothy Dalton Bond movies where the villain in that movie is like an arms dealer. And he has exactly the same kind of display of these kinds of warmongers through history. But Roper's got kind of an impressive little story arc through here that I wouldn't have expected until I watched the movie. Williams was fun, but he didn't have as much of an arc. And I thought Roper was going to be the same way. But like you said, the actor thought Roper was going to be the main character when he signed on to play him. And you can see why, because he sort of gets introduced as this degenerate gambler, fallen soldier kind of guy. He has no problem sleeping with these women on the island where Bruce Lee is too moral and chaste to do that in the face of the job he has to do. And then it looks like Han is going to be able to seduce Roper to his side because we already know Roper's a gambler and he's losing money. And he introduces him to the war room, he introduces him to the island and all that could be his. 
the literal save the cat moment that Roper has where Hans, again, Ernst Blofeld style, stroking the white fuzzy cat, puts the cat on the guillotine and Roper literally saves him and says, no, no, no. I know you're telling me the guts it takes to just kill innocent creatures and you're about to slaughter this animal, but I can't have that. And then literally saves the cat. And that's like a beginning of his redemptive arc. And of course, he ends up siding with Bruce at the end of the movie to save the day. Seeing William's body is another reason why he does that, though, because he yes. sees him hanging and he would have been killed other than on Han's order. So he puts two and two together awfully fast. And they have a friendship and a loyalty from their Vietnam days, which is a very small element when they first meet on the boat. He doesn't really overplay that moment. Saxon doesn't. But I think that's a huge key too. the cat thing. You're right. That may be where he says, I don't want to be part of this. If you're going to do this to prove a point, you're just being a dick. But you also killed my friend. Well, then I'm out. Before we started recording, we were talking about how the dialogue seemed off sync a little bit to you and oh, wasn't yeah. quite right, sounded weird. And that's because I read online that they filmed without sound the entire thing. Not only not dialogue, but not even sound effects. So they must not have brought audio there at all. Or if they did, it was some rudimentary tape recorder so they knew what people said and then could redo it in the studio later on. And that's why they sound strange the way they do. But considering that it almost becomes like an animated film, the Toy Story movies, for example, all the Pixar stuff, every single thing in that has to be created. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to recreate sound, not just dialogue, but sound effects, of course, music and everything. That makes Robert Klaus and his team, Bruce Lee, of course, even more impressive when they have to do so much post-production work, even more than you normally would in a movie, when you've got to re-record every single thing people said. But then again, that's also a bit of a kung fu cliche. They're not as off-sync as those movies are because they're literally dubbed from being Chinese or whatever their language might be into English. But it also plays into that cliche and that stereotype. That is one of the things that stuck out to me. Not quite perfectly lined up audio, even amongst the actors that are natively English speaking. So I couldn't quite understand why that was. But if you're correct in the fact that they didn't record any sound while they were filming the movie, that makes perfect sense. One of the little bits of trivia I'd always read about this movie was that the American crew that went over to Hong Kong to film this was just stunned by how antiquated the equipment that was made available to them in Hong Kong was, how out of date it was. And so maybe it was just a thing where they didn't have the equipment they were expecting to have, or just felt like it would be easier to do it after the fact. And as soon as you said, you know what, it's all dubbed after filming. One of the things that in the moment I didn't pick up on, but now that you're saying this it makes perfect sense again, in the opening credits of this movie, ADR, that stands for additional dialogue replacement. Yes. Or automated dialogue. It's both things. Yeah. So I think in this case, it was automated dialogue replacement, but there's a company that does that. And in the opening credit, it just said automated dialogue replacement. <laughs> Maybe they played such a large role in the post-production that they got a huge credit in the front of this movie. They didn't want to offend Shaolin like Han did. He offended Shaolin. That's one of the reasons also why Lee has to beat him up. He <laughs> dared to offend Shaolin. Well, as for scoring, this is one of the most sex-filled movies we've ever had. You get some casual nudity from the women looking really good, beefy, often topless men. And yeah, the women are prostitutes and they're forced to be there. You're right. That makes it distasteful. But just purely in an animal instinct kind of way, which this movie is so much about, score. Yeah, it's a pretty sexy film. Probably was a date film back in the 70s. Why not? Wouldn't surprise me. I don't know if there's anybody in history of movies that has been more defined than Bruce Lee. Not a bulky guy, but dear God, when he's active and flexing, you can see every outline of every muscle in the man's body. You know who he reminded me of a little bit? Something we covered last December is, what was his name? Alex in Free Solo. Alex Hunold, is that his name? Yes, that's a good comparison. Wiry dude, five seven, five eight, whatever. Alex might be a little bit taller, I guess, but no body fat, 
the kind of person that, well, Bruce Lee could beat you up. I'm sure Alex couldn't beat people up, but just pound for pound, pure health, pure strength in those muscles and those tendons and those even bones probably might have been able to beat up a Schwarzenegger type of guy because he's just so perfectly physically fit to do something that's such a difficult practice as well. Kung Fu is, and certainly rock climbing is, free soloing especially. I don't fault you for saying scorable movie. I get it. A lot of very fit people in this movie. As long as you look past the fact that the women are there against their will, which I guess I did by saying it that way. <laughs> Glaze over some of the darker elements of this movie for sure. I do want to ask you one more question about a scene Maybe the third and final scene in this movie that legitimately made me giggle a little bit. When everybody arrives on the island, and the reason this came to mind when you mentioned it is because it's shortly after Han comes in with his retinue of women behind him, right? So everybody's seated and they're all kind of eating or not in the case of Williams, but they're all at dinner and Han comes in with all his women and he's trying to demonstrate how they're not just beautiful, but they're also deadly, right? So he starts throwing apples in the air and they're pulling earrings that are, I guess, are sharpened weapons and they're impaling the apples in midair. And the one concubine or whatever she's meant to be pulls out an earring, huffs on it, mm. and it impales the apple and then Bruce Lee catches it. That's a metal earring. And you just gently puffed on it and it flew through the air like a blow dart perfectly accurately into that apple. That would never happen. That is so physically impossible. <laughs> How did she aim it? It was just resting in her palm and she puffed on it and it perfectly skewered the thing. They had me, the first two women that did it when they pulled the things off the ear and they threw them. I'm like, that's cool. The third one was just so bloody silly. You guys took it one step too far. <laughs> the Summer Olympics were in 76. So maybe she was headed there for this competition that no one else was going to be in other than her. So she would have had the gold, silver and bronze medal. Well, speaking of scoring things and gold medals and such, I give this movie a seven and a half out of 10, maybe even a gentle eight. But for a movie in this genre, which I don't normally love, I've seen plenty of movies like this, not counting the Zhang Zimu stuff in the more recent era, Hero and House of Flying Daggers, which I guess is the genre too, but more of the chop socky Kung Fu 70s kinds of films that this inspired. Bruce Lee was in other ones, of course, before and after this Jackie Chan. But in this genre, it's probably closer to a perfect 10. Yeah. It's almost like I've said Point Break or Rocky Four most of the Rockies really on an enjoyment level is a 12 out of 10. But if you want to be more objective, it's more in the seven range or seven and a half in this case. What about you? Yeah, I was going to give it an eight as much as I've laughed at some elements of it. If you go into it expecting some seventies campiness and you're willing to accept it and you're willing to overlook seventies era screenwriting stuff that we've talked about and be willing not to be too offended by some of those things. It's a super enjoyable movie it's not perfect. Some of the performances aren't great. There's some screenwriting stuff that's quasi nonsensical. But like you said, if you were to grade it out of 10 for this genre of movie, yeah, this is the pinnacle. This is it. This is the Citizen Kane of this genre. Yeah. It's a heck of a lot of fun. There's some great action sequences, even 50 years later. And you have to give it a ton of respect for the influence it had on filmmaking thereafter. I was way more impressed by it than I was expecting to be. I generally don't have a ton of hope for movies from the 70s that we've watched because most of the time they kind of let me down. But this one surprised me. I think if anything, I'd give it a, probably about an eight. It was looking good. It gave me emotional content. Because we needed emotional content. Love that line. Say it again. <laughs> All right. In two weeks, it will be nearly the end of June. So school, such as it is, will be done for the year. So why not talk about school kids in the underrated flick that has some football in it, especially at the end, Lucas. And doing my pre-search for this movie last night, I forgot about some dark stuff. We'll worry about that in two weeks. But the movie itself, just what's on screen, 
is a very fun, good coming-of-age movie, and Corey Haim, probably his best ever work. So we'll do that as we get into the end of June. We are on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you got this one. Also, subscribe to us wherever you download your podcasts. We need subscribers. Who doesn't? And please give us a rating because that helps grow the show. The more ratings we have, the more promotion we get through these things. I don't understand how this stuff works. I don't know about metrics, but that's how it works. So please subscribe and rate us. So take your easy, Bruce Lee fans. You've worked hard to slay the bad guys, so you've earned some time to take your easy. And we had emotional, emotional content. content.